Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 182. My name is Terry Frost and this podcast is going to be bigger than Ben-Hur because not only am I covering the 1959 Ben-Hur adaptation but I'm also looking at the 1960 epic from about 100 years before and that is Spartacus, directed by Stanley Kubrick. I'm going to be playing off uh, a historic epic against a religious biblical epic and we're going to see which one comes out ahead so sit back i'm going to get the contact details out of the way and we'll get this chariot rolling around the track paleo cinema podcast appears every two weeks it's a podcast of classic film appreciation the rules are pretty easy to remember each episode is talk about two movies in it and the movies have to be over 20 years old apart from that they can be of any genre Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com. iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I'd like to acknowledge the Korong Jung Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. How's it going, people? I have just spent over seven hours watching movies for this podcast, so you better fucking appreciate it. Um, yeah, things are, are going okay here. The weather's still pretty warm and sunny and fine. Tomorrow, Sally and I are heading out to a cheese and cider festival nearby. So I'm recording this actually on Saturday night instead of Sunday afternoon for that very reason. We're going to be out sampling the local produce and comestibles and drinks and I'm um, having a good time and I don't expect to be in any fit condition to podcast after I do so. Not that I ever really get drunk. I'll have an occasional drink now and then but I, I never get drunk and I, when I say that I don't expect to be in any fit mood to podcast I mean I'm probably going to be stuffed full of food. I've been out in the sun all day so I'll probably be a little dehydrated and the last thing you need when you're podcasting is to burp into the microphone though i do know the guys over at silver and gold podcast have made it a trademark that they burp on their podcast but it's not really what i do so today tonight is when i'm doing it the last light of the sun is darkening the western is brightening the western sky got a little bit of purple a little bit of blue and a little bit of gray in the sky and it seems an odd time to be podcasting but there it is you've got to be adaptable and flexible with these things so why am i covering ben Hur and spartacus probably because i saw hail caesar the other day and as i said in the last martian driving podcast i reviewed it for um ali kane's festival website and i enjoyed watching it and it's got that aspect of it where george clooney's character um baird whitfield is starring in a biblical epic not unlike Ben-Hur or Spartacus. And so I thought, geez, I haven't done Ben-Hur or Spartacus. Why don't I do those? So I grabbed the Blu-rays, which I already had because they were available quite cheaply. And 
last evening started watching them. I didn't finish till this afternoon because they are both really, really long films. Um, Ben-Hur is 212 minutes and the restored version of Spartacus with all of the bits um, included is 197 minutes. So all up that makes about seven hours of movie watching for one podcast where usually I do like four hours maybe. But nonetheless, um, it's given me a lot to talk about. They're both interesting films, and it's kind of an interesting thing for me to compare and contrast the two as well, because they come from very different ends of the Hollywood Hollywood tradition, even though at first glance they're both historical epics made um, in a set in a time within about a hundred years of each other. But nonetheless, and in roughly the same parts of the world too. But nonetheless, it's um a really interesting differentiation between the two and I'm going to have a bit of fun talking about that so what have I been watching um, not a lot, I'm not sure what I've been doing I've probably been watching a lot of television but I, for some reason I haven't really watched any movies lately uh, the only one I watched which was for the radio gig with Liz Travaskas up at ABC Local Radio in Northern Territory was at Liz's insistence we watched Garden State, the Zach Braff movie from 2004, which also stars Natalie Portman and Peter Sarsgaard. Um, and it's... I didn't like the film. I'll be honest with you, I didn't like the film. It seemed like a movie that was specifically designed to be shown at the Sundance Film Festival. It's very much a vanity project, an ego trip. It was really popular in 2004, and Liz, who saw it then, has a great fondness for it. And so we, we didn't come agree about this film. And I said on the radio that I forgot what the German word was for a face that needs to be slapped. But I said that Zach Braff had one of those. Um, which I'm not sure um, whether it's like that. But, you know, we don't have to agree on every film that we talk about. And in this one, we definitely didn't and that's okay um there are films that i've recommended that liz hasn't enjoyed and i think that um putting our point on why we enjoy the films to each other as a part of the radio conversation makes for a very interesting 20 to 30 minutes when we do that so that's what i've watched uh and then i watched these two monster movies uh in the sense of being incredibly large scale and, um, yeah, I mean, my brain's still kind of reeling from watching these two films. And I'll be honest with you, I'm coming to, coming to particularly Ben-Hur from the viewpoint of an atheist. And I will be talking about the way in which the religious aspects of the film are handled. But I will try not to kind of piss on the cake of anybody's religious beliefs. It's not particularly what I want to do now. I've done it a number of times on Facebook, but... Um, for this one, I'm going to talk about it in as neutral a way as I can, but still coming from that viewpoint that I have being somebody who doesn't have any religious belief. And it's probably a good thing for you that I don't, because when I would be podcasting on a Sunday afternoon, I'd be in some kind of place of worship if I was, or or could it be a Saturday if I was Jewish or Seventh-day Adventist or a Mormon or something like that. See, um, atheists and podcasting can go together pretty well, because when you podcast on a weekend, it tends to fill up all available time, which I don't at all care about. Um, but if I was also obliged to go into a purpose-built building and tell a deity how good he, she, or it is, 
then there'd be less time to podcast. So we this is a win-win for us all that I'm an atheist. But anyway, I'm going to take a break. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about the 1959 MGM epic Ben-Hur, directed by William Wyler, starring Charlton Heston, Jack Hawkins, Hayarit, Stephen Boyd, Hugh Griffith, with music by Nicholas Rocha, and the best chariot race in cinema history. You may conquer the land, you may slaughter the people, that is not the end. We will rise again. The day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. of my people and in their future. You are a conquered people. Kill me and your mother and sister will die today. May God grant me vengeance. I don't believe in miracles. All life is a miracle. I should kiss you goodbye. People are praying for a man who can drive their team to victory over Messala. You could be that man. If you stay here, you will find yourself part of this tragedy. I am already part of this tragedy. So Ben Hur is not a 59 MGM. Um, epic historical drama it says here directed by William Wyler produced by Sam Zimbalist for MGM starring Charlton Heston Stephen Boyd Jack Hawkins Haya Harit which is a hard thing to say and Hugh Griffith now Ben-Hur is based well, at the time the movie came out it was based on a novel that was 79 years old the original novel of Ben-Hur, called Ben-Hur, A Story of the Christ, was written by a Civil War Union general called Lew Wallace in 1880. And it was very popular at the time. It was very much of the time. It has a whole bunch of chapters. The first chapter is about the nativity and about the magi who arrived to give gifts to Jesus at his birth. And all those sort of things. And then it goes on to tell the story of Judah Ben-Hur, a mythical um, Jewish prince living in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Due to circumstances which become obvious when you watch the movie, Judah is taken prisoner by the Roman Empire and put as a galley slave in their um, warships. And through happenstance, happens to, um, during a naval battle saved the life of a Roman consul leading the fleet, um, Quintus Arius, played by Jack Hawkins in the movie. Um, Arius, of course, having been rescued by a slave, immediately adopts him, and Judah then learns in the circus in Rome how to run um, a chariot race, how to, to basically be a chariot driver in chariot races. He's then adopted by Arius and returns to... Jerusalem from Rome to search for his mother and sister who were captured by the Romans at the same time he was. Meanwhile his old childhood friend Masala who's betrayed him and had him arrested is um, the premier chariot racer in 
Jerusalem at the time. And as Judah is returning to Jerusalem from Rome, he meets um, a really interesting character played by Hugh Griffith in Brownface. And because it is Hugh Griffith and he's so over the top, I find it very easy to forgive him the fact that he's playing an Arab guy. He plays an Arab sheik called uh, Elderim, who has the best racing horses in the world. The horses are white and they're incredibly charismatic horses. They're probably the four most charismatic horses in cinema. They're actually in the movie there, Lipizzano horses from Austria, which are said to be the most intelligent horses and the most character-rich horses in the world. So, of course, this then leads to a chariot race um, between Masala and Judah Ben-Hur, which forms the centerpiece of the movie, after which Judah, of course, he wins the chariot race. We all know that. Judah then goes looking for his sister and finds the tragedy that has befallen them. Meanwhile, Jesus is being convicted by Pontius Pilate and crucified, and all this rolls into the her family drama in a way very very typical of biblical epics of the 1950s but the original novel was very very popular it made a fortune for Lou Wallace and in fact it was adapted at the very start of the 20th century it was adapted as a stage play and they actually had a chariot race with real horses and chariots on stage in a theatre they had them running on a treadmill with the landscape scrolling behind them on a, a kind of spindle and it was said to be the most spectacular thing anybody had ever seen in the theatre at the time and I can understand that if you've got two lots of horses racing each other on a treadmill in front of you on stage with the possibility that they're going to career off and leap into the audience then I can see how it would be incredibly exciting but yeah it was considered the kind of wonder of the age in the theatre world and was very very popular then in 1925 there was a silent version made as a movie with Francis X Bushman in it which again was incredibly popular and it had the chariot race filmed in California of course um, and even when that one was made you've got to remember the book that it was based on at that time was 45 years old by the time 1959 came along and they were just heading to the end of the biblical epic craze that overtook America you had um, Cecil B. DeMille who'd never really stopped making biblical epics made things like Samson Delilah in the late 40s then you've got the robe Demetrius and the gladiators any number of these things and the kind of culmination the ultimate rendition of the biblical epic in cinema was Ben-Hur. Um, Charlton Heston was selected to star in it. There was talk at the time that Kirk Douglas had actually tried out for it and was unsuccessful. He thought the role was meant to be his because, of course, Kirk Douglas being a Jewish guy, having the ultimate Jewish hero of literature at the time, was definitely a role for him to have. But instead they went with a kind of lean and lanky Protestant Carlton Heston to play Judah Ben-Hur. And uh, Heston went on to win an Oscar for Best Actor for the role. Though I don't think by a, a long chalk it is his best acting role. I think Will Penny is his best acting role. I've talked about that in a previous Paleo Cinema podcast. But, um, yeah, it's one of those roles that uh, Heston did after he did the Ten Commandments, which was the other 
big biblical epic that he um, did where he played Moses. So um, he was the kind of, in some ways, the natural person to select to, pay, to play Judah Ben-Hur because he had the background of playing Jewish characters in biblical settings. Um, the director, William Hilo himself was Jewish. He was um, in his late 50s at the time. And when I kind of go to compare Spartacus against Ben-Hur, I think that's something very interesting. Um, while I was heading towards the last five or six movies of his career, and was in his late 50s, and um, at a time in 1959, if you were in your late 50s, you were old. These days, with the way healthcare is in civilised countries, uh, 59 is not that old. In fact, I'm going to be 59 in a couple of weeks. But, having said that, um, comparing the approach taken in this film by the studio MGM, the director William Wyler, and the screenwriter, he said, rustling the pages to turn his reference material over, um, Carl Tumberg. There were also rewrites, of course, done by Gore Vidal, amongst other people, um, to kind of spark up the script. Apparently, from what I've read in a couple of different biographies, the Carl Tumberg script, even though he is the person who gets his name up on the screen, wasn't very good and there were extensive rewrites done by a number of people including Gore Vidal which brings us to the Masala Judah Ben-Hur relationship which happens at the start of the film soon after they do the nativity now I'll, I'll talk about the nativity first because I found that quite interesting one of the things about the way that Ben-Hur approaches biblical subjects and subjects of Christian mythology pissed me off and this i'm sure there are a number of christians out there who are pissed off too is how careful and respectful and well to be really honest quite boring they are in doing it here they are look at it from a christian point of view here it is the birth of the start of your religion the son of god jesus christ and they make it oh jesus christ they make it boring i like Nicholas roche's um music but in this part of it, it is laid on with a trowel. And in fact, this was one of the longest um, soundtracks ever made for a film, because of course it is quite a long film as well. But the problem I have with that part of it is how heavy-handed it is and pious, and it, it doesn't really add anything to the story and lengthens the movie. And what, there are parts of this movie that are quite slow. There are, they kind of, you know, they don't, hurry they take their time telling this story in and i think that maybe somebody and if there's anybody out there on the internet who's inclined to do this please do get someone to recut ben Hur to take out the slow bits and to speed up the pace i'm sure you get a really solid 180 minute movie out of it by taking out just some of the bits of people walking around and um, yeah, there are some very kind of heavy parts of this movie which drag things down to an extent. And MGM was considered, you know, the premier studio in Hollywood at the time, but it was also the one that was most kind of conservative and careful about the product it put out. It was putting out musicals and things like that. It um, it was just on the tail end of that musical era, which was very successful for it, and. It was one. It was a, a colossus of a studio. Had 
enormous amounts of people working for it in all the different areas. It had very tight and very conservative control under Louis Mayer. But by the late 1940s, um, the people running this studio had brought in Dory Sherry to run production. And Mayer's influence was on the decline um, from about 10 years before Ben-Hur was made. But nonetheless, and in fact... Mayer died in 1957, but his influence is still in the studio. That kind of viewpoint of being the posh studio, the one that was kind of careful and conservative and gave people clean, wholesome entertainment, um, was really, in some ways, a lead weight on the studio. And that attitude does reflect in Ben Hur, that. Which isn't to say that all of it is a bad film. And it's made even better by the utterances by people like Gore Vidal about how they approach the, the subject. And uh, Gore Vidal has said that one of the things he added to the script, and with he had conversations with Stephen Boyd about this part, was that his idea was to have the childhood and boyhood and teenage friendship between Judah Ben-Hur and Masala to have been a physical one. And he told Stephen Boyd to play it as if they were lovers re-meeting. And if you have a look at that part of the film towards the start, it's very difficult to see it any other way. Because Stephen Boyd, who was a closeted gay man in his own life, does put across a, a genuine passion for Judah and when they get back together and have that very kind of phallically symbolic competition with the spears there's it's hard not to see that once you're made aware of it and um, Charlton Heston of course wasn't in that loop because he was a very conservative gentleman but you can see in the acting that he plays up to that not quite knowing what it is and and the weird thing about this film, from that point of view, is that his later relationship with the daughter of one of his servants, um, her name is Esther, played by Haya Hararit, with that difficult name, um, isn't anywhere as passionate and kind of you know full of life and vitality, and and that, there isn't that gleam in his eye when he's with Esther that there is when he's with Masala. And that gives us that alternate reading of the film, which some people would be pissed off by, but I think it's a valid reading of the film, given the fact that the screenwriter, Gore Vidal, of course, himself was a gay gentleman, and probably was, if not only in retrospect, aware of that kind of undercurrent of attraction between Masala and Judah Ben-Hur. In fact, we don't particularly see Masala with women either. You do see him with another male friend and companion later on, but you never see him kind of in a passionate brace with a woman. And Judah is never as pa that passionate with um, Esther. And it's historically valid to have that sort of a relationship as part of the story, because at the time, um, gay relationships, particularly under the Roman Empire, were not particularly frowned on and uh, were accepted as a part of the range of human sexuality to an extent that what didn't really happen again in Western society until the 1970s, 1980s even. So, 
Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a valid interpretation of that, and it makes the film more interesting to have that interpretation as well because it, there are some leaden and and stolid bits in it, particularly given the fact that Charlton Heston is in that kind of grim, humorless, gritted teeth mode of acting that he had, and he. Uh, even though he did get a, a Best Actor Oscar for this, I don't think by a long chalk it was the best acting role of 1959. So let's just take a look at the Best Actor nominees for 1959 and you can make your own mind up whether Heston deserves it or not. The other people who were nominated were Jack Lemmon for Some Like It Hot, Paul Muni, The Last Angry Man, and James Stewart, Anatomy of Murder, and Lawrence Harvey for Room at the Top. Now, Lawrence Harvey is notoriously a bad actor but he did get a, a nomination for Ben-Hur but Charlton Heston won my argument would be that it's either Stuart in Anatomy of a Murder or Jack Lemmon in Some Luck at Hot who deserved it more and I'm sure there are other actors in non-nominated movies um, who would have better deserved the gong than Charlton Heston by the way uh, the Ben-Hur also won Best Supporting Actor for Hugh Griffith as the Sheik in this film. The other Best Supporting Actor nominees, and I find this very interesting as well, were Arthur O'Connell in Anatomy of a Murder, George C. Scott in Anatomy of the Murder, Ed Wynn in The Diary of Anne Frank, and oddly enough, and this is the one that surprised me, Robert Vaughan in The Young Philadelphians. I'm going to have to re-watch that movie just to see the role because I don't remember it. But... um, Best Motion Picture, Ben-Hur got that one as well. Best Director, William Wyler, who beat Billy Wilder for Some Like It Hot, and um, Jack Clayton for Room at the Top, George Stevens for The Diary of Anne Frank, and Fred Zinnemann for The Nun Story. Best Foreign Language Film of the Year, in fact, was Black Orpheus, a movie I've talked about on a previous podcast. I'm kind of looking at this stuff and getting sucked into it and not doing the podcast. So I just closed that browser window so I can continue to talk about Ben-Hur. Um, there are a couple of other bits in the movie that are interesting. I love the um, the naval battle was done in a big studio production tank in Hollywood. And I don't think that's one of the best things. It, it compares badly to the chariot race. But nonetheless, it, it, um, it, it was a bold attempt to kind of show something that was difficult to show. A naval battle on a, a cloudy kind of not great weather day between a whole bunch of ships throwing greek fire at each other and then ramming each other with a whole bunch of um galley slaves rowing their guts out down below decks it's a hard one to kind of portray using the technologies of the time in a a meaningful way but uh there are a couple other bits I, i like in the film i do like and here's the australian connection Frank Thring playing Pontius Pilate. Now, Frank Thring is a cult favourite in Australia. He was in The Man from Hong Kong as well, um, which is kind of cool. And he did any number of television appearances and he um, did television commercials. And a friend of mine, Greg Peacock, has told me that he went to entertain a whole bunch of sailors down at HMAS Cerberus, down about 60 kilometres from Melbourne. And kind of, you know, just went out to yeah, support the the sailors in a way, and was camping outrageous and over the top. And the guys just loved it, hanging out with him and hearing his stories about Hollywood and things like that. And uh, Greg, who was a sailor at the time, and is very much a gay gentleman himself, um, really 
said it was a it was a fun time for everybody to have Frank's ring there entertaining them. Which brings us to the chariot race, which was the um, watching it again. You just see the scale of it is still awe inspiring and magnificent, and um, it the size of the sets and the numbers of extras. Um, boggle the mind. This isn't done with CGI. This isn't done with heads on sticks. This is thousands of extras at Cinecittà Studios in Rome, where, oddly enough, and this is the bit that gets me, in one of the minor studios um, within Cinecittà, in one of the other sound stages, they were filming a little film called La Dolce Vita at the time, which is kind of cool. In one end of Cinecittà, you've got not only do you have the enormous set for the chariot race that is the centerpiece of Ben-Hur. But you've also got another track on this, on Chinichita Studios where they were practicing the chariot racing while they were building the set for the actual chariot race itself with those enormous bowing gods at the either end of the track where the U-turn is. And the stands and, and just the scale of it is mind-blowing. And seeing it in the original aspect ratio, of course, on a decent television Blu-ray, it does bring across again just how enormous this particular piece of the film is. The stunt work of the film was done by one of the great stuntmen of the 20th century. I've actually got his autobiography here somewhere in the man cave. And that is Giacomo Canut and his son Joe Canut is the guy who did that fantastic stunt where Judah's chariot jumps over a fallen chariot and the horses jump over it and the chariot jumps over it and he falls forward almost into the horses. All of those stunts were done by the Canut sons and, and Yakima Canut himself. And they trained all of the horses and they trained the charioteers and they trained the actors how to use the chariots. Because running a four-horse chariot is not a skill set that a lot of people have. But Yakima Canut had been through westerns and done westerns for a very long time as a stunt coordinator and as a stuntman. And he, so he knew his way around horses. He did that really good stunt of jumping between the horses uh, in the original movie Stagecoach. That's Yakima Canut doing that stunt as well. So he knew horses, but they were usually strung two in a row in front of each other rather than um, done side by side as they were in Ben-Hur. So you've got the point. You could, If people say, what's the most exciting sports movie in cinema history? You could make a valid argument for saying that it's actually Ben-Hur because that chariot race is, of course, a sporting event. Um, the, it's all done with real effects. There's none of it's done CG. It's all people going in a great big oval track with four horses and a camera truck in front of them, um, whipping the horses and, and kind of emoting and, and doing the acting as well as doing the stunt work. Took a hell of a long time to film. And Chinichita, because it needed the space destroyed the set soon afterwards which is a shame because it's a, an incredibly epic piece of not only set design but physically making the set is just something that's mind-blowingly and this is the only word for it epic um seeing it one more time and kind of evaluating it that's um a fantastic piece of cinema history it's, it's much much for me and from my personal point of view it's much, much better than the rest of the film. It's 
them pulling out all the stops and there's a passion in the way they do it and the emotions are running high. Masala's there who hates Judah's guts. Judah's there to win um, against Masala. Um, everybody, they've got people from all over the Roman world running chariots there. You've got the shake-up in the stands with these Arab comrades. They've just made an enormous bet with Masala on who's going to win the race. There's a vitality to all of that that is singularly lacking in the Christian homilies you get in the rest of the film, particularly at the end. Um, it's a, the, everything after the chariot race in this film. And I've got it on a Blu-ray double disc and the, in, um, the intermission is at the end of the first disc. And soon after the start of the second disc, we have the chariot race. Everything after that is anticlimactic because it's just that it's it's where the film catches fire. It's where we, I mean, if you have a look at the poster for Ben Hur, it's got the chariot race there and Ben Hur in big monumental letters carved out of the chariot arena with the crouching god guy on the left hand side. So that's the bit we remember about the film. We don't remember the minor stuff. We remember that kind of larger-than-life chariot race, which just, though I've seen it maybe six or seven times so far, is still mind-blowingly good and mind-blowing and a mind-blowing achievement in not only editing, but the music really fits on it as well. Nicholas Roche's music really comes to the game at that part of the film. And uh, the acting is kind of very primal and raw. It's over-the-top acting because they're acting again on such a large scale in such a large set that you can't kind of pull in your acting. You've got to have the snarls on the face and you've got to have the you know, gleaming, staring, glaring eyes to be able to kind of compete against what's going on and the rest of the screen and the horses are all beautiful and um, the bits where people run onto the arena with stretches to hurry off the wounded before the horses all come around again and to get rid of the horses for the chariots that have crashed all of that stuff is beautifully edited and put together um, the editing was by John D. Dunning and Ralphie Winters and I think they do a fantastic job in particularly in that part of the film I don't think you could, you know, if you took away a frame of the film, it would, that film, in the chariot race part, it would be a lesser film. I think the editing is just right. I think the camera shots are fantastically well framed. It's not repetitive and uninteresting at all. The um, Sometimes they've got the camera high above the arena on top of one of the um, bits of statuary that form part of the arena at other times it's down at ground level as the guys with the stretches run out and the horses roar past um, sometimes of course it's from the viewpoint on the front horse's head even though there have been subsequent Ben-Hur adaptations um, of much lesser degree I don't think this one could be topped because of that I think it's um, just a fantastic piece of filmmaking and mind-blowingly good and one of the things, I, I, as I'm going to name check, I'm going to brag here, I'm going to um, drop a name. When I did, very briefly, for less than a minute, met Charlton Heston. And I shook his hand as he was signing the book for the person I was with, uh, his autobiography. Um, it occurred to me, walking away from that, that 
Not only had I shook the hand that parted the Red Sea, but I'd shook the hand that held the winning chariot reins in Ben-Hur. And for a moment, I went into a weird kind of fugue state, even though Charlton Heston's politics were abysmal, even though his wig was patently obvious when I met him. The fact that I had kind of shaken hands with somebody who had done those things in epic pieces of cinema put me into a, a kind of weird, few, yeah, pretty much a fugue state, like uh, you know, that kind of continuous stunned wow for about five minutes where you know, you've touched something larger than yourself. It, it's a moment of transcendence in a cinema fan's kind of way. But then we come to earth with the tail end of the film where Judah finds out that his mother and his sister are still alive and that Esther, at his mother's insistence, his mother's name is Miriam, at her insistence has not told him that they were alive because they were lepers living in the Valley of the Lepers, this enormous pit with caves all around the side where the lepers live in Jerusalem. And Judah then, of course, goes down and visits them as because his sister, Tirza, is dying. And they he takes them to the crucifixion. And they see Jesus with the crown of thorns and the cross. And you never see his face. It's one of those biblical epics where for some reason you're not allowed to see Jesus' face. And um, Judah realises that Jesus was a man who gave him some water when he was being taken away to be a galley slave earlier in the film. Uh, a carpenter from Nazareth, of course. And then, as the crucifixion happens, and there's a couple of really nice shots there with lightning flashing in the sky and um, Jesus on the cross, which look really cool. And and it's beautifully framed and things like that. And then um, Judah's sister and mother are cured of their leprosy by the Holy Spirit or something like that, or getting splashed with Jesus' blood, I'm not sure. Somehow... It cures Hansen's disease for them. And then there's this crazy symbolic moment where it's pissing down rain, Jesus has died, and the blood of Jesus Christ is flowing down these puddles, down the hill of um, Gethsemane or whatever it is. And that then takes us into um, Judah's home where he and Esther get together and everything's happy and the family's all back together and um, everything might not have happened Masala's been tromped to death by horses and all is well with the world. But all of that is just like anti-climax. The chariot race is what you're there for. You're not there to see lepers cured when you go to see Ben-Hur. You're there to see that chariot race. And that's, oddly enough, of the 212 minutes, the chariot race is nine of those minutes, uh, but seems to take a lot longer. It does seem like more than nine minutes when you're watching it because it draws you in the intensity of it draws you in you're invested in the characters to the extent of masala um is an asshole you like hugh griffith's character the -the over-the-top sheik who um teaches judah that it's polite to burp in arab society after a meal which is one of the cool moments and one of the few moments of humor in the film and just the exuberance that 
that fine Welsh actor Hugh Griffith brings to the role. I think that's maybe why he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar, because everybody else was being so stolid and serious, because it's a biblical epic and it's about the Bible. And he comes in from left field with an over-the-top, vital and, and lifely performance. You know, he's such so full of life. That maybe they went, oh shit, this guy's good compared to the other ones, and then that kind of influenced their voting. Who knows? Or maybe they just thought he was really an Arab person. They were trying to get some ethnic diversity into the Oscars. Nah, that's not the case. But having said that, it's an in- interesting and important part of cinema. It did win tons and tons of Academy Awards. It made a shit ton of money for MGM that wasn't equaled until 1970 when Airport came out. And it's one of those movies that if you haven't seen it, you probably got to see it for yeah, you know, to see where people's heads were at in cinema at the time. And well, I don't think I'll do another biblical epic for a while because, I'll, and this is purely my own prejudice and purely my own biases, but the amount of saccharine piety you get in most biblical epics pisses me off. It's kind of like that hypocrisy you get with um, Cecil B. DeMille where he says, yes, we're making stories of biblical stories, but we're going to put lots of tits and ask and scantily clad dancing girls in there anyway. It's that kind of you know, cognitive dissonance that he would have had to go through to put that out, saying, yes, we're telling this story and it's very important and it's all about God, but there's going to be titties in it. And we're going to contend movies that don't have the biblical stuff in them but have titties in them. It's um, It's just one of those weird things of Hollywood at the time. Now, I'm going to take another break, and when I get back, we're going to talk about something that's very much um, a historical epic, but it's also about the recent history of Hollywood at the time before the film was made for some very cool reasons. And it's very topical, of course, because the screenplay was written by Dalton Trombo, um, which, if you've seen the movie Trombo, you know a fair bit about the background to the script being written. And based on a book by Howard Fast called Spartacus, and Howard Fast himself was a blacklisted writer in Hollywood. So the themes of the movies are do relate and do parallel very interestingly to the Hollywood blacklist. Slaves, you have arrived at the gladiatorial school of Lentulus Batiatus. Here you will be trained by experts to fight in pairs to the death the gladiator's like a stallion. You'll be taught to use your heads. A good body with a dull brain is as cheap as life itself. Approximately half our graduates live for five, ten years. Some of them even attain freedom. What's your name, slave? Spartacus. I congratulate you, and may fortune smile on most of you. No talking in the kitchen, slave. I'm not an animal! They ravaged the countryside, forcing other slaves to join them. Each day, 12 their numbers. The garrison of Rome stands ready. An army of gladiators. There's never been an army like that. We can beat anything they send against us if we really want to. No man can withstand Rome. I'm not after glory. I'm after Spartacus. March tonight! They were only slaves. Accept destiny and order. When just one man says, no, I won't, Rome begins to fear. 
We were tens of thousands who said no. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Once upon a time, there was an actor called Kirk Douglas. He was from a Jewish family. He wasn't born wealthy. Became very successful as an actor. He won an Oscar. He was well regarded among his peers. He'd done everything from film noir to boxing films. He had also appeared in a historic film for which he won the Oscar, playing Vincent van Gogh. He was well regarded. He missed out on playing Ben Hur. Even though he previously worked for William Wyler, making a movie called The Detective Story, or Detective Story, one of the two, um, he didn't get the gong. So he was kind of pissed off about it because he was the sort of man that got pissed off about that sort of thing. And a guy who was friends with um, both him and Wyler, uh, a guy called Eddie Lewis, a vice president of... Douglas's film production company, Brighter Productions, I'm kind of paraphrasing this from Wikipedia, suggested that he read Howard Fast's novel Spartacus. It might be the sort of thing he'd like to do. By the way, Brighter Productions was named after Kirk Douglas's mother. So Douglas read it. He cut a deal out of his own money with Howard Fast to get the rights to the novel. And it, he then roped in a bunch of actors to appear in it. He talked to Peter Ustinov. He talked to Olivier Lawton. Uh, Laurence Olivier, Charles Lawton, and based on that, Universal agreed to finance the film. Uh, originally, he was trying to get David Lean to direct it, which would have been a totally different experience. But he wasn't able to get David Lean, who may well have been in pre-production for Lawrence of Arabia at the time, or at least had the idea for Lawrence of Arabia, and good for us that he um, went with that choice. He then got Anthony Mann, who'd done a number of westerns, Fine director, um, if you get a chance to see any of Anthony Mann's films, do. And they started filming Spartacus in Death Valley, um, doing the mining scenes at the start of the film where we see Spartacus, a man born into slavery, working in a mine, um, crunching rocks on a cliff above Death Valley. A week in, Douglas sacked him. He, he was worried that Anthony Mann was terrified of the scale of the film and really couldn't do it. So, of course, then he has to go and find another director. And there's a director with whom he had worked on Paths of Glory a couple of years before. Quite an eccentric guy, a bit weird-looking. A guy called Stanley Kubrick. 30 years old, half the age of William Wyler when he made Ben-Hur. Douglas thinks that um, Kubrick's going to be an easy guy to control because he's a fairly new director. He doesn't have a string of successes, but he's going up against Kirk Douglas, who has, and has an immense amount of clout in Hollywood. Didn't work. Um, Kubrick is his own man, and Kubrick didn't particularly like the character of Spartacus, because he said the man had no flaws. He was a, a flawless human being. 
And so they had some disagreements about that. Kubrick had some really wild ideas, like he wanted to make the film almost a splatter film by getting people with disabilities, uh, one guy with only half a head, and they filled out the other half of the head. He wanted to have the brains pour out during a fight scene. He wanted to make the film as gory as anything done by an exploitation film director in the 1980s. But that kind of didn't play. It wouldn't have gone past the senses. The studio would have vetoed it anyway. So we do get one moment in Spartacus where a man has his arm severed. And that's only a kind of a momentary thing. But that's the, the leftover part of that part of Stanley Kubrick's contribution to the film. The film's pretty simple. It's based on historical fact, but drifts well away from it. Spartacus is a Thracian. He's the son and grandson of slaves. He's never had a life, and he's grown into a man working in a mine. Uh, through happenstance, uh, as he's about to be starved to death, nailed to, basically chained to a rock, he makes... Um, a slave owner and runner of a gladiator school. A character played wonderfully by Peter Ustinov. In fact, he won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for it, called Batitis. And Batitis likes the look of Spartacus and takes him to be a part of his gladiator school. And then we learn, we then move to the brutal life of gladiators, how they're trained mostly by Charles McGraw. Um... Nice character actor, by the way. Uh, and how they're treated like kind of pampered animals in some ways. They're fed well. They train very hard. They train brutally hard and dangerously hard and dangerously. And if they're occasionally rewarded with the company of female slaves. And that is where Spartacus meets his soon-to-be wife, Verunia played by Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons wasn't the original actor chosen to play Verunia. Um, the original actor was a woman from East Prussia called Sabine Bethman, who uh, is still alive and did have a career. She was had a role in The Indian Tomb, the Fritz Lang movie in 1959, had a number of other um, German language roles. But uh, when Kubrick was hired to direct the film, the first thing he did was sack her and get Gene Simmons in to um, play Verinia. He was kind of flexing his muscles and saying, I'm the director, and the way he did that was to sack the leading actress, even though they'd already done a lot of the costume work for her. Now, there was some, there was a lot of tension in the making of the movie between the three main males involved, uh, Stanley Kubrick, Kirk Douglas, and... Dalton Trombo. Douglas's idea of the film and his image of the film was a let my people go kind of thing for Spartacus and the slaves and he wanted the focus to be entirely on Spartacus and the slaves and their attempt to reach freedom with the aid of Cilician pirates as they crossed the lower part of Italy fighting all the way against the Romans. Whereas Trombo being a good honest little socialist guy, his idea was to concentrate on the Roman um, legionnaire Crassus, played by Laurence Olivier, and how he was a demagogue, a kind of McCarthy come pattern sort of character, and um, that was where Trumbo's kind of uh, interests lie. He wanted to tell the story of fascism and uh, fascism in a democracy, and in doing that, he uh, brought in all of the stuff with the 
um, the Senate of Rome, uh, and the characters Gracchus, the old, wily, and quite left-wing senator, um, going up against Crassus. And um, in the middle of this, we have a very bland John Gavin playing Juli- a young Julius Caesar in the film. Meanwhile, Stanley Kubrick didn't like the main character and wanted to turn the film into a blood fest. So it's amazing the film actually got made. But they ended up all working together quite well. But there were still some teething problems. Um, they had some massive scenes to do. The battle scenes were pretty spectacular for the time. There were masses of people involved. And that was something that Kubrick kind of liked in some ways but other ways he didn't like he liked working in a studio because he thought that work filming outside in the open air was too much distraction for the actors and that they focused better on their acting and the way that things should be if they were in a studio that's why there are a lot of studio shots in this film we then have the other problem of Dalton Trumbo because Dalton Trumbo was blacklisted and they were going to um, release a screenplay using one of his bland pseudonyms which he had been using for almost a decade because he was jailed of course um, by the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1950 for not naming names as Brian Cranston would show in the movie Trumbo but um, Trumbo had also written a screenplay for Otto Preminger for the movie Exodus, which was coming out after Spartacus. And Otto Preminger, always looking out for publicity, announced that Dalton Trumbo's name would be on the screen, and Dalton Trumbo indeed had written the script for Exodus. This, of course, then put Douglas under pressure, even though Douglas was kind of dithering about doing this because he was very much a Hollywood man. Ultimately, he decided before Exodus came out, that he would have Dalton Trumbo's name on the screen, along with Howard Fast, both of them blacklisted actors. This was then helped when the film was released, when President-elect John F. Kennedy crossed the picket line outside the cinema to see Spartacus. There was an American Legion picket line because Dalton Trumbo's name was going to be on the screen, and they kicked up a shit about that, as this sort of person often does. And by the way, Dino Gorman does a pretty good Kirk Douglas in Trumbo, if you get to see that movie. But one of the, the I'm going to start comparing and contrasting Ben Hur with Spartacus now because I think it's a useful exercise to do that. Um, you've got to address the gay issue. Uh, there's the um, stuff that Gore Vidal said that he put into Ben Hur about Masala and Judah and their relationship. So you've got that on one side of things. On the other side, you've got the excised scenes from the movie Spartacus between Antoninus, the young slave, played by Tony Curtis, and Crassus, played by Laurence Olivier, when they're bathing, and when they talk about whether he likes snails or whether he likes oysters. And, and that kind of subtext of the fact that uh, Crassus is bisexual and has an interest in Antoninus. That plays as uh, a more overt, and it was only when they remastered the film that that scene came back into it, along with a few other scenes. So the restored version of the film shows us that subtlety but maturity about um, 
relationships. Of course, Antoninus does a runner and joins the slave revolt because he doesn't want to be fucked by Crassus. But nonetheless, there's a kind of subtlety about how that's approached, which doesn't exist in Ben-Hur, which doesn't even kind of acknowledge it at all, overtly, and it's all in the acting. So you've got that on one side. <coughs> the other one you've got, one director, William Wyler, very fine director, The Best Years of Our Lives, a whole bunch of other fine films like that, was twice as old as Stanley Kubrick. Uh, approximately at the time the two films were made. And Wyler had directed films from the silent film day, so he had a long history in Hollywood. He was a company man in that sense, whereas Kubrick wanted to take his own path. And even if he was under the kind of leash of the producer and star of the film, Kirk Douglas, I think that um, he and Douglas and Trumbo bring a vitality to the film that Ben-Hur lacks, particularly in the relationship between Spartacus and Verinia. That love story and that kind of growing humanisation of the brutalised slave, which I think could have been played a little bit better in some respects, um, really kind of works. That that love story is at the centre of it, and there's that heartbreaking moment at the end where Verinia shows Spartacus their son. And there's nothing as emotionally strong as that in Ben-Hur. And I think that uh, the screenwriter of Ben-Hur, um, Carl Thunberg, and, and the other people who worked on the screenplay, didn't weren't as good as Trumbo. And I think Trumbo's political stuff also works in the film, the complexities of the Roman Senate and the dynamic between Gracchus and Crassus and the beautiful acting that we get from Laurence Olivier and Charles Lawton in those roles, less so from John Gavin, of course, playing Julius Caesar and John Dole playing Glabrus. But seeing those two go head-to-head and just watching the art they bring to their acting is marvellous. I think in general the ensemble in Spartacus works better with Kirk Douglas, Lawrence Olivier, Gene Simmons, Charles Lawton, Peter Ustinov with his sly, cunning and um, amusing role. Tony Curtis gets to play Antoninus. And again, this is Tony Curtis trying to break out of the um, straitjacket of being a matinee idol that he was in in the 1950s, though he had just one an Academy Award nomination for the Defiant Ones the year before. <coughs> Excuse me, the year before. And um, even the the smaller character roles in this one, Herbert Lom playing the um, emissary for the Cilician Pirates is pretty good in the film, and I like Herbert Lom in it. And I did look through the IMDb page for Spartacus as well, and it's got some couple of interesting actors in very small roles. One of the soldiers was played by George Kennedy, and we should mention that George Kennedy died at the age of 91 this week. Um, a fine character actor, Academy Award winner, um, a mere six years after this film, in fact, where he was almost an extra in Spartacus. But um, I like George Kennedy a lot, and uh, he will be missed. But uh, he's in it as well. Yeah, he's one of those ones where you've got to look carefully and you can spot him. The other one was that one of the gladiators in the gladiator school, and subsequently, 
was Richard Farnsworth, who people remember from The Straight Story, the um, David Lynch film, but who had a long career as a stuntman and actor before that. So he's one of the gladiators in there, Richard Farnsworth, and I liked him particularly well in Two Jakes, the sequel to Chinatown that uh, Jack Nicholson did in 1991. So you've got those two in there. And even though Spartacus does lack the chariot race that Ben-Hur has, it has that wonderful gladiator fight in the little gladiator pit between Drabber, the um, Nubian slave, played by Woody Strode brilliantly. And there's not a lot of dialogue that um, Drabber has, but Woody Strode's physical acting really does put it across very well. And that um, gladiator fight scene is beautifully filmed by Kubrick. It's just a lovely piece of work. The build-up with the initial fight between John Ireland and one of the other gladiators where they're watching through the slatted door of the cage they're in and seeing the previous fight end fast and brutally and then needing to go out and, and fight them against each other themselves. Uh, I think that's one of the great bits of fight choreography and tension in cinema and the um, soundtrack really supports it well in that scene as well but uh, it's got that strength in it that um, Ben Hur lacks and there's nothing as, uh, that has the passion of the Spartacus Varinia relationship that's in Ben Hur um, if you kind of want to look at the two films from a slight distance Ben-Hur's kind of like the Count of Monte Cristo in a way. It's about one man and his family, and all he cares about is himself and his family and rescuing them. He doesn't have any consideration for the other galley slaves particularly. He doesn't build any friendships while he's a slave. He's constantly looking for a father figure. He um, finds the first one, of course, in Jack Hawkins' character, the um, Tribune. And then he finds yet another in Hugh Griffith's Sheik. He, he's constantly looking for father figures and looking to build family and kind of re- get back what he had, even though he himself was a slave owner. In fact, um, his love interest in the movie is one, the daughter of one of his slaves. So you've got that kind of patrician outlook that Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur has throughout the movie, even though he turns into a Christian, he's still going to be carrying slaves and he's still um, about himself and his family and, and his belief in God. Whereas Spartacus plays on a much bigger canvas. The character of Spartacus is about freeing slaves. He knows that what's happened to him in his whole life has been wrong. He wants slaves to be free and to have a place to be. And that in a way, is nobler. He doesn't have any religious belief. He doesn't believe in the Roman gods. Christianity hasn't come along yet. He's um, He has no Christian belief, but in some ways is much more Christian character than Judah Ben-Hur ever is. So you've got that going for it as well. And then you've got that political subtext of I am Spartacus, where that's a direct fart up the nose of the House Un-American Activities Committee. 
they want the slaves who are captured at the end of the film to name names, to tell them who Spartacus is, to betray what they believe in, betray the person whom they followed across Italy. And they don't. They refuse to name names and pay the price, whatever it is, because to do so would mean a life of slavery. And that parallel between the House Un-American Activities Committee and McCarthyism in general makes Spartacus, for me, a much stronger film. It doesn't have the kind of MGM piety of Ben-Hur and it doesn't have the essential selfishness of the characters. All of those slaves act selflessly. They act in the greater interest and not in self-interest the way the Judah Ben-Hur does. And I find that much better. It was a much more satisfying movie, even though you've got the spectacle and the bread and circuses of the chariot race in Ben-Hur. I think emotionally and as far as the music of language is concerned, um, Spartacus plays much better. If you listen to the dialogue in both of them, the dialogue in Ben-Hur is flows a lot less it's spat out in a lot of cases and it doesn't have the euphony that the dialogue has in Spartacus that beautiful stuff written for us by Dalton Trumbo where he uses exactly the right words to convey the emotions he there's, there's and there's also time for a little humor a little playfulness and then there's the emotional impact the emotional impact of Spartacus, particularly the climax of the film, is enhanced by something very subtle that is done during the making of the film. As the slaves are moving across Italy and fighting their way across Italy and freeing themselves, we get these kind of montage cameos of different groups of the slaves. There's a slightly older bearded man who carries a child all the way across. And there's a young couple who fall in love as they march across Italy with Spartacus. And there's the older, very devoted couple who are together. And there are a few others like that where we just get little cameos repeated as they travel with Spartacus. And then when we see them cold and dead on the ground with the people they loved. And it's not overstated. There's not a word of dialogue by any of these actors. But in a way that I find incredibly admirable, it shows that even their lives matter. It's not just about the stars. The characters played by these extras have their own life and their own story within the larger story of the film. And I think that that is great credit to the people making this film. And it is an opportunity missed by a film like Ben-Hur which is old-school Hollywood, whereas Kubrick and, to an extent, Kirk Douglas and Dalton Trumbo were outsiders, in a sense. I mean, Douglas, because he was a selfish prick in a lot of ways but and wanted to make things his own way and to be his own boss. Trumbo, because he'd been fucked over by the system. And Kubrick, because even though he was making films within the studio system, after this film would always have the right... He may not have always got final cut, and I think he may have got final cut in a lot of his films, but he always took control of his own films after this. 
he was not a studio man in the traditional sense of it. So all of these people working together do a fantastic job of giving us a more textured and lived-in world in Spartacus than we have in Ben-Hur. In spite of that one monumental and overwhelmingly cool set piece that runs for nine minutes of the film. But having said that, I enjoyed re-watching both of these films again. It's, um, it was a bit of a marathon, but it wasn't an ordeal. And I don't think I'll watch them again for a while, but I'll kind of retain the memories of what I liked about them for a, a very long time. But anyway, I'm going to wrap it up now because my throat's starting to give out, as it sometimes does at the end of podcasts. Um, now, as usual, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, watch good movies, watch bad movies, look after yourselves, look after each other. Live your life as best you can and find a good film that you've never seen before or an old one that you haven't seen for a long time. And of course, also thank you to the people who support the podcast through Patreon. If you can't afford or are not inclined to support the podcast through Patreon, please leave um, a review on iTunes. I'm very happy to accept those as well. But anyway, I'm going to leave you all, as usual, with the credits to the film in the style of movie credits as a way of thanking the supporters of the podcast via the Patreon campaign campaign i'll be back with another martian driving podcast next week and with a paleo cinema podcast in two weeks take care of yourselves and um take care here are the credits for paleo cinema and martian driving podcast done in the style of movie credits thank you very much to all of the people who've supported the patreon campaign and you can do that too by going to patreon.com slash paleo cinema I'd like to thank Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Dylan, the goat wrangler, Elaine, the scientific advisor, Julia, the casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher, the gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve Sullivan, who is our director of Monster Effects, and you can find his stuff at CushingHorrors.com. And Eric is our set security head. And David Luce is our First Amendment counsel. So thank you very much to all of the people who have supported the podcast financially via the Patreon campaign. Mm-hmm.